Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we delve into the history of a Charlie Brown Christmas, 57 years after it made its television debut, to find out how a quickly written story and soundtrack combined to create a holiday classic. We get some expertise on a new online artificial intelligence-driven chatbot that is able to take a basic command, such as write a statement about radio news, and almost instantly produce a concise and usually correct passage. It's a real game changer. It may seem like magic, but it's very much being done by a machine. We learn about the ongoing process to repatriate indigenous artifacts now sitting in museums and collections right around the world. But first, the Bank of Canada hiked interest rates for the seventh time this year, now at 4.25%, the highest in nearly 15 years. But could this be the final rate hike? The bank's announcement suggests it could be. The Bank of Canada raised interest rates again That's the seventh time they've done that this year. It's up another half percentage point to 4.25%. That's a full 4% higher than it was at the beginning of the year. It's the highest that it's been since January of 2008. Um, The only, well, perhaps the good news is, maybe we don't know yet exactly, is that there is some language in today's announcement that suggests this may be it. Here's Western University economics professor Stephen Williamson. You know, so so if you thought of oh, what what might be going on in the governing council, maybe this was kind of a, a way to compromise to say, okay, uh, why don't we why don't we put this language in the statement saying that we could be done now uh, that we're we're shifting the data dependency. Right, shifting to data dependency. Uh, the next announcement is in January, so the 1st of 2023. And this, of course, matters to all of us who have mortgages, whether they be fixed rate or variable rate and so on. Um, you know, the Bank of Canada does think that uh, these interest rate hikes, although they take a long time to make their way through the economy, they do think that they're driving down demand. We've certainly seen uh, demand for housing and housing prices start to soften quite considerably in places such as Toronto, although it's still higher than it was pre-pandemic, so it's hard to say exactly what the impact has been. But inflation is still very high, running up around 7%. Keep in mind, the Bank of Canada wants to drive it back down to closer to 2%, and we're really not there yet. So what next, and what kind of impact will this latest rate hike have on all of us? Don Drummond is a former uh, chief economist for TD. He's now the Stauffer Dunning Fellow and adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, and he joins us now. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. So uh, here we are, end of the year, uh, the seventh rate hike, uh, another 0.5%, which seemed, I guess, was some, perhaps somewhat higher than expectations, but uh, uh, maybe some light at the end of the horizon here for, for people waiting for this to, to stop. Well, we all spend so much time, maybe too much time, trying to read the tea leaves of their statements, and they're pretty cryptic. But this one is very different than the previous ones. The, the other ones made no mistake about it, that they were not done, and there was future interest rates to come. This time they said, "Well, we're thinking about it." It doesn't, doesn't say it doesn't say there won't be more, but it didn't indicate this time that they're only thinking in one direction. They're thinking, you know, maybe that's enough. Uh, we'll wait. We'll see. We'll wait for more data. But of course, that never works out because the impact of the interest rate increase they just put in place today won't show up for another year or two. So it's not like you can sit around and wait to see if it's working. So in other words, even the interest rates they started, the hikes they started to impose earlier this year, the first ones still really haven't wound their way through the economy just yet. Well, and this is the terrible thing with monetary policy. Uh, you got lags in human behavior. and The the lags will be devil you every time because who knows? We may look back in 10 years and maybe three and a half was enough, maybe four was enough. But in fairness to the Bank of Canada, they won't know that for another year or two. So you don't really know when to stop. And then human behavior kicks in. You have been criticized quite roundly for keeping interest rates too low for too long. So if you're going to make a second mistake, you probably don't want to make the same one twice in a row. So if anything, you're probably going to edge towards the risk of having increased too much. Because imagine how they would look if in a year or two from now, they had stopped the interest rate increases and inflation was still a big problem. And then people would be harshly critical and said, you make a mistake in 2020 and 2021, and you just continue the mistake in 2022. 4.25 is probably high enough, but 
again, we won't know. The economy is still, in both Canada and the United States, they're still producing fairly robust numbers. The labor market is still tight. Uh, we'll see whether that's going to be enough to turn it around. Bankers are human is what you're saying, Todd, of course. Uh, Ab- we- absolutely human and, and and dealing with a very imprecise policy tool. <laughs> you, you, you would like to have a policy tool in which you saw the results very quickly, and, and that is definitely not what you've got with monetary policy. Well, you see some uh, some positive signs here. As you mentioned, the economy is still doing pretty well. Jobs numbers are still positive. And uh, according to the Bank of Canada today, at least, they are seeing a bit of what they're, they'd hope to see, which is uh, a drive down in demand because of these interest rates. Yeah, the demand softened a little bit. And you know, n- never have 39 million people in a Canadian been so well-versed in all the different ways you could measure inflation because, you know, it used to be the headline inflation was all anybody would look at. Now they're, again, reading through the tea leaves of these sub-indices of the Bank of Canada. What is it excluding food and energy? The United States, uh, increasingly you get into the popular press, the consumption deflator, which I'm sure no one's ever paid any attention. But if you really look hard enough, inflation is moderating, but but still way above the targets of both the Federal Reserve Board and the Bank of Canada, but at least going in the right direction. Yeah, but sticky though, right? I mean, we if 2% is your target, more or less, I mean, it's still up around 7 and it looks like it's... Uh been stuck there for a while. I guess it may it may stay there for the time being, as you mentioned earlier, as these interest rate hikes work their way through the economy. And we still, you know, a year ago, we were at 0.25%. So this is still a relatively new monetary policy wise. This is still, we're still in the relatively early days of this. Yeah, at least there's some satisfaction that some things sometimes work the way they're supposed to work. Basically, the whole Bank of Canada model is where is the economy versus the level of potential output? Is there an output gap? The economy is underperforming the potential or is demand above the potential? And they have said for quite a while that demand is above potential. They still hinted at that in today's statement. And that should produce above acceptable rates of inflation. And it is. And then, of course, piled onto that is a whole bunch of special factors like the increase in food inflation, Russia's attack on Ukraine, what we're seeing on the energy prices, uh, the challenges of the global supply chain. So we have that basic bare bones potential demand being exceeded, which would generate inflation itself. And then we've got no shortage of special factors added onto that. Yeah, I, I guess the next uh, announcement comes in January. There's still expectations that maybe, just maybe, 2023 will begin the way 2022 has ended with yet another small hike. I guess if you're someone, if you're watching this closely, and you mentioned this earlier, of course, historically this is still even 4.5 percent. If it were to rise to that in January, is historically low. If I were at the Bank of Canada and I were not worried about this accusation that you've made the same mistake in the same direction twice, I would be inclined to pause at the 4.25 because I I think there's a reasonable argument that that is high enough, and then you have to be patient and wait for those lags. But but I get it at the when you get into human behavior and the like that is definitely you're going to be chewing on your nails waiting for that. And and with, with that great fear that it doesn't come down and then people will say, why in the world did you stop the interest rate increases? But I, it wouldn't shock me if this is a pause and perhaps this is this is it. You know, they have said that their so-called neutral rate of inflation, of, of interest rate, one that's consistent with their 2% inflation target is 2 to 3%. And they're well above that. So if their models and their theories uh, work the way they think they do, this may well be enough. You said before, we focus too much on the increase. We should really be looking at what 4.25% means. And again, historically, not particularly high, but, you know, housing prices are very high. People owe a lot. uh, So it has its impact. Well, and I'm very sympathetic for younger people because I will say that 4.25 is not particularly high from historical levels, but my memory goes back a long way. I mean, my first mortgage was a 17%. uh, So full full disclosure, 1982, that's high in my definition. And that was a four-year rate. The one-year rates were over 20% at that time. That that was abnormal, but having interest rates at this level is quite uh, consistent with longer periods. My parents' generation, mortgage rates were legislated at 6%, and my generation thought that was a pretty good deal. But I get it. If you came into the home ownership um, arena, 
in 2008, 2009, 2010, you've had your entire home ownership experience with rock bottom interest rates or rock bottom mortgage rates. And and people told you wrongly, as it turned out, that they may stay that way forever. And and I get it. You became conditioned to think that was the normal, but that's not the normal. That was abnormal. It's relevant. It's a fairly extended period of these super lower interest rates, but there's nothing particularly high about today interest rates. But I get it. It's a shock from going from that low. And I get it. People that took very high mortgages, very large mortgages will, will be squeezed because of this. We're fortunate in Canada. We have stringent requirements. Those who don't have a big down to payment had to pass the so-called stress test. So they had to demonstrate that the financial wherewithal to withstand these type of mortgage rates. So hopefully we won't have big defaults. We have seen the housing market soften, but we haven't seen them collapse. The government of Canada is trying to get 500,000 new uh, immigrants into the country per year. So the demand for housing is going to be firm. And that doesn't mean that housing prices won't come down, but it doesn't suggest we're likely to see the kind of housing market crisis like we saw in the United States uh, in 2008 and 2009. So this might not end all that badly. No. And when one looks at uh, different things in place, I remember it in the UK, of course, where housing prices were very high, amortization rates were much longer, right? I'm wondering, I'm, I'm seeing reports of that here as well, that uh, to try and soften the blow a little bit here, that the banks are looking for different ways to uh, to allow borrowers, at least mortgage holders, to try to adapt to what's happening without without the whole thing falling apart. Well, that's the part that people who haven't paid really close and attention to their variable mortgage rate may want to check that out because in some cases, the interest rates have a trigger point and people are having to make higher monthly payments. But for a lot of people, what's been happening is they've continued to make the same payments, but their amortization period has increased. And and in some cases, their amortization period right now may be over 100 years. Wow. Eventually, they get to the point that those original payments are not even covering the interest, never mind the principal. But a lot of people who have variable mortgage rates are not paying any principal down at this point, even if their payments haven't gone up. And of course, people at fixed mortgage rates who have come due are, are facing much higher rates. Again, not particularly high from a historical perspective, but I get it, the pain if you've had 1.65 of your mortgage rate for the last five years and you're facing something that's way higher than that, obviously that's very difficult. The bond market seems to think, at least that when it comes to something like fixed rate mortgages, that things are, uh, that we're plateauing here to a certain extent. Well, and that is the interesting thing. And of course, that that brings the inversion of the yield curve into play because there's a lot of people that have this knee-jerk reaction that the yield curve is inverted. In other words, short-term interest rates are above long-term interest rates. That's a so-called reliable predictor of recession. But it's sort of like our comment, you got to pay attention to levels, not just rates of change. Yes, we do have an inverted yield curve. Ten-year Government of Canada bond yields are below 3%. But the short-term interest rates aren't particularly high, and the long-term interest rates are, by historical standards, quite low. So I I don't think that that automatically uh, suggested that's a predictor. When we've had inverted yield curves before, and we have had recessions following, we've had much higher short-term interest rates than we've got at the moment. That's a good thing, in a way, to have the longer-term bond yields somewhat lower because they they do form the funding uh, model for the fixed-rate mortgages. And we shouldn't forget about the people who have worked hard and may be fortunate to be in a net savings position because they're, they have been in a terrible position for the last 20 years that if you're investing your money in fixed-income bonds and guaranteed investment certificates and the like, the interest rates have been so low they haven't even covered the rate of inflation. So now at least you can get guaranteed uh, GICs that are somewhat interesting for the first time in a very long time and some return for the hard work you put in to generate those savings. Yeah, I remember my grandma had GICs back in the day, back in the day when they were quite valuable, but certainly not in my, in my adulthood. Don Drummond, as always, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, you recognize that song, don't you? Deborah says that um, A Charlie Brown Christmas is my favorite ever. It makes me laugh, cry a bit, and smile throughout. Yeah, I watched it again. It'd been a long time. Uh, I've obviously listened to the soundtrack many, 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 many times. I mean, it's kind of a Christmas standard, but I hadn't seen 
this special in quite a while. And I forgot just how adult it was that, you know, some of the topics that it deals with, with Charlie Brown's sort of feelings about Christmas, his conflicts about the way the spirit of Christmas are actually very poignant in a, in a lot of ways. and certainly way above the level that I would have considered it as um, the first time that I saw it, like so many of us, sometime in the 70s. Um, after it had been on for quite a while. Keep in mind, it debuted this week in 1965. So it's been 57 years since it first aired. And at the time, I mean, it was pretty rushed, according to the history. Uh, it was the first cartoon, the first televised special to feature this already very popular uh, cartoon strip, Peanuts. And uh, it was rushed for a number of reasons, all of them very interesting, but few e- few expected that this would not be a one and done and that it would continue to be seen again and again and again. A reminder of what it was like. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. (laughs) What a treat. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Now you remember, right? I mean, it has become one of those holiday traditions. I I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it at some point, or at least heard the soundtrack. And what's so remarkable about it is that you realize that Charlie Brown on its, the Christmas special on its own without the soundtrack would have been lacking. The soundtrack without the special would have been lacking. And there's a reason for that, by the way, because part of that soundtrack wasn't even written for a Christmas special. But you put the two together and something very magical happens. In fact, in many ways, the soundtrack is probably more known than the actual special. Probably remember the songs quicker than you remember exactly what the scenes were. I remember the tree, obviously that poor little tree. We had a few of those in my house over the years. Um, and then them dancing, of course, the school dance to Linus and Lucy. We played that earlier. Um, but there's such an incredible story behind how that special came together and how it made it to air 57 years ago this week and why the soundtrack is as good as it is. Someone who knows all about this is someone who's written about both, both Peanuts and its creator, Charles Schultz, as well as Vince Guaraldi, whose soundtrack became such an iconic part of the whole experience. Uh, film and TV critic Derek Bang is in Davis, California. He's the author of 50 Years of Happiness, a tribute to Charles M. Schultz, and a book called Vince Guaraldi at the Piano, as well as many others, and he joins me now. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. It's nice to be asked. Yeah, couldn't imagine a better person to talk to about uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, probably one of the most adored and uh, holiday specials of all. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I do. I, yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of like remembering when we first walked on the moon. Oh, wow. No, really. I, yeah. it, it's that strong. I was 10 years old. I was wearing pajamas. And it was a school night. And this is important because my parents were really strict about watching television on a school night. It was verboten. But they made an exception for Charlie Brown. And I, I didn't remember this. I went back and looked it up. And it was actually a Thursday night, December 9th, 1965. And I was transfixed, not just by the show itself, but also by the music, what I was hearing. I was not sophisticated enough at the age of 10 to recognize that I was hearing an established jazz performer. And of course, the credits at the end of the show zip past so quickly of course. that I didn't come close to catching his name. And I figured, well... We'll never be able to see that again, right? One and done. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not yeah. quite the way it worked out. No, but it's interesting that at the time, and you obviously looked into the, you know this better than anyone. At the time, there was certainly no um, expectation that this would be turned into some sort of year after year, some sort of holiday tradition. No, not at all. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop-motion animation special, preceded Charlie Brown Christmas by one year. And when How the Grinch Stole Christmas came along a couple years later, the three of them combined kind of set the pattern for the, yes, absolutely, let's bring them back every single year. 
What's interesting about uh, about a Charlie Brown Christmas too is that compared to the great, well, the Grinch is the Grinch is an interesting tale, needless to say, but certainly compared to Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, a Charlie Brown Christmas is a it's an interesting story. It's quite sophisticated in its own way, and the soundtrack too. Definitely, it is melancholy. I would not call a Charlie Brown Christmas happy until the very end, because as is the case with Charlie Brown. Most of the time in the newspaper strip, particularly back in the mid-1960s, you know, he was never going to kick the football. He was never going to win a baseball game. He was never going to meet the little red-haired girl. Every description you can think of for Charlie Brown starts with the phrase, he was never. (laughs) And yet, even though it looks like that's going to happen toward the beginning of a Charlie Brown Christmas, with the commercialized Christmas taking over get to the end, it all works out happily. Yeah, I'll always remember that tree. I mean, even as a child, you're like that tree. Because I, I tell you, we had that tree once or twice in my house. So I always <laughs> got a kick out of the way you hear the, the needles fall off <laughs> sound <laughs> each time he picks it up and a few more needles fall off. Uh, tell me, because it was the first televised peanut special, was it not? And, and yes, I think it was. That's the, so, so even that's quite the story about how that came together. Mm-hmm. It wasn't supposed to be the first. It was entirely an accident. So let's back up a couple of years. Director-producer Lee Mendelson had worked in television in San Francisco at KPIX for a number of years and won awards for documentaries that he made for that channel. So Mendelssohn devoted the bulk of this planned one-hour special to following Charles Schultz around during a typical day in his life driving his kids to school, going to the office, drawing the next cartoon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mendelssohn knew that he wanted some animated bits in this documentary, so he contacted Bill Melendez, who had been doing a very successful series of animated TV spots with the Peanuts characters for Ford Automobile in the early 1960s. The final piece of the equation was that Lee knew that he wanted, being a jazz fan himself, jazz music behind these animated segments. And so what happened next, we attribute to kismet or fate or the intervention of the gods or whatever your deity of choice. Lee's driving across the Golden Gate Bridge one day when what on the local jazz radio stations should pop up, then cast your fate to the wind which was then Vince Guaraldi's very much admired and popular jazz radio hit. As soon as he could park, Lee found a payphone, called the radio station, got put in touch with Fantasy, called Fantasy, got put in touch with Guaraldi and offered Guaraldi the gig. And Guaraldi accepted, and he said he'd go home and noodle around some stuff. So a couple of weeks go by. Lee gets a phone call from Guaraldi. And Vince says, I've got something I want to play for you. And Lee said, okay, fine, I'll drive over. I can be there in an hour or so. And Vince said, no, 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 no. I got to play it right now while it's fresh in my mind. And Guaraldi played what later would become so famous as Linus and Lucy. Right. And again, telling this story decades later, Lee insists that at that moment, he knew that that was not only the missing element but that if I had not gotten in touch with Vince, I'm not sure we ever would have had a franchise. Lee mm-hmm. felt that strongly about Garaldi's music. When the documentary was finished, Lee wasn't able to sell it to any of the three big American TV channels. The network, CBS, ABC, and NBC, they all passed. So Lee tried a Hail Mary play. He cut the 60-minute show down to 30 minutes. Still wasn't able to sell it. Okay. We now move to... The spring of 1965, when an advertising rep who had watched the documentary was approached by Coca-Cola, which wanted to emulate Timex, which had gotten some good action for sponsoring the previous year, 1964, special Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Coca-Cola wanted some of that Christmas action. So they said to Lee, the ad rep said to Lee, have you and Charles Schultz got a Peanuts Christmas special? And Lee said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Having no such thing, right? Right. So the ad rep said, great. Coca-Cola wants it on their desk, a script treatment by Monday. 
This was a Friday. <laughs> so Lee hangs, <laughs> Lee hangs up the phone, looks at it thoughtfully for a couple of moments, calls Charles Schultz and says, guess what? I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And Schultz said, what's that? And Lee said, that is what you are going to write this weekend. Well, Schultz took it graciously. Lee drove up and the two of them blue skied various things back and forth. And they did indeed have a script ready that they were able to send to the Coca-Cola execs the following Monday morning. It was already spring, early spring. And when Coca-Cola gave the go-ahead, Lee and Bill Melendez weren't even sure they had enough time to do a half-hour animated special that had to air that December. But they did manage. And when they finished, I I envisioned the film reels still being wet in the, yeah, in the can. No Lee flew it to New York to screen it to the CBS execs who hated it. They didn't like the fact that the kid characters were voiced by actual children. This was novel up to this point in time. Mm -hmm. You think about, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle, the right, Flintstones, right. whatever. They're always voiced by adults. Mm -hmm. They didn't like the jazz music. They didn't like the religious content. Oh, they really didn't like the religious content. Mm -hmm. And Lee was sent packing. Well, he pulled out another Hail Mary play and booked an appointment with the head of CBS. And it must have been a heck of a pitch because the CBS had reversed the decision. And of course, as we know, the rest is history. The show aired as planned on December 9th, 1965, was a monster hit. And then, miraculously, it came back the following year. And again. And it came back again the following <laughs> again, year. Again. And again, and again. And no wonder that show and Garaldi's music have become so important to so many people as part of their annual holiday tradition. People yeah. listen to that album when they put decorations on the tree or wrap gifts or bake Christmas cookies. It is ubiquitous. Yeah, not even particularly Christmassy if you think about it. I mean, it is now. It has become such. But if you think about it back in then, it didn't. It wasn't Christmas music per se, was it? No, it really wasn't. There are some Garaldi arrangements of familiar Christmas songs on the album, O Tannenbaum, the Christmas song, which, by the way, is not in the special, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Of course, the kid chorus sings, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mm -hmm. And there's there's that riff on the little drummer boy, My Little mm -hmm. Drum. But yes, uh, beyond those, Garaldi recycled themes that he had written for the documentary that never aired, most notably Linus and Lucy. And uh, Frida with the natural curly hair and happiness and a few other little items that you hear snippets of very briefly, fleetingly during a Charlie Brown Christmas. But as you say, primarily, you know what it is? It's a Bossa Nova album. And, you know, not as in 1965, you would not have regarded it as a quote unquote holiday jazz album per se, certainly not along the lines of what somebody like Kenny Burrell or a few other of the early jazz cats who released holiday albums did. And yet today it is the most famous holiday album, which 57 years on, I think is nothing short of miraculous. It is miraculous. Derek Bang, it's such a fascinating story. I have to leave it at that, but thank you so much. You're very welcome. So I'm not sure if anyone has pointed this out to you since it became all the rage sort of over the last week or so, but I've been on this website today called chat.openai.com, and it is a chatbot, artificial intelligence-driven chatbot. And I don't know much about how this stuff works. I do know what you can do with something like this, um, and it's quite, it's quite remarkable. In fact, people have been sort of jaw-dropped by this whole thing. Um, it's called ChatGPT. Essentially, what it allows you to do is you can enter a, a command, say, for instance, write a statement about radio news. And this thing churns out a statement about radio news 
in a nanosecond. So what it did is what is radio news is an important source of information for many people around the world. It provides timely updates on current events, politics, sports, and more, allowing listeners to stay informed about what is happening in their local communities and beyond. Now, that's pretty generic, right? But that was written by a bot in about five seconds. You just I just asked it to write a statement about radio news, type that in, hit enter, and within seconds, it gave me that, which if you think about it, is pretty remarkable. I asked them to write a limerick about a radio talk show host called Ben. And it turned out again in just a matter of seconds. There once was a radio host named Ben. I don't know about the past tense there. There once was a radio host named Ben who talked with a voice that was grand. He discussed all the news and played all the best tunes and kept his listeners entertained and in hand. Not bad, right? In a matter of seconds, write a limerick about a talk show radio host called Ben. That's what it gave me. Now, I did try to give it, <laughs> drill down a little bit further and ask them to write an article about Ben O'Hara Byrne. And this is what they gave me. This is, you'll see this is part of the problem with it. Um, ben O'Hara Byrne was a beloved poet and writer who left an indelible mark on the literary world. Born and raised in Dublin, Ireland, O'Hara Byrne was the youngest of five siblings and grew up in a close-knit family. Of course, none of that is correct. None of it. But it sounds so authoritative, doesn't it? And again, it just turned that out in a matter of seconds. So this, of course, is what could you do with this? I mean, there's any number of things. Write me an essay. Write me an essay about, uh, you know, anything. The American Revolution. Write me an essay. It will do it. It will do it quickly. Now, you know, I'm pretty sure people could pick up on the fact that it wasn't written necessarily by a human being. But could they? Could they? This gets awfully close to that fine line between who wrote this, a human or a machine, because it finds the way that words connect to each other and it searches through its vast memory for, for associations and so on and turns things out very quickly. So I wanted to find out more about how it works, why it's caused such a furor uh, and so forth. And we thought we'd asked We'd ask Benj Edwards. He's the AI and machine learning reporter for Ars Technica. He's also editor-in-chief of Vintage Computing and Gaming, and he joins us now from Raleigh in North Carolina. Thanks so much for your time. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Now, you know a lot about this technology, but I think for a lot of first-timers uh, moving into it, it's, it's pretty jaw-dropping of, because of what it can do. So what exactly does this sort of uh, – what, what exactly does this technology do? I'm not a technical expert on this. Uh, you know, I have a cursory knowledge of all this stuff enough for me to report on it. But, um, you know, what's shocking people about it is that you can converse with a machine like a human, basically. And it's it gives a very convincing performance. It's very sure of itself. It can answer a lot of questions in a lot of detail that was never possible before. Yeah, we all have a friend like that, right? That's the. Uh, uh, but in this sense, it's able to do some pretty incredible stuff when you, when you prompt it to. In other words, you know, churn out essays, churn out statements, and so on, uh, even articles. Basically, what the kind of thing you and I do. Yeah, it's um, it's great at predicting the next thing in a sequence. So it it's great at completing thoughts. For example. Um, like if you start a poem or something, or you start like an essay, it could it can finish that. It can also originate things. That's something that's sort of new to this chat GPT because the technology behind it is several years old now, and they've improved it. OpenAI has improved it over time. So it's learning, in other words. Yeah, they've trained it more, and they've they figured out ways to guide its output to be more accurate over time, just mostly through human feedback. Yeah. So, so what is it doing? I mean, just so listeners understand mm -hmm. what, what it's actually doing, when you input something like, you know, write a sonnet about uh, my radio show, for instance, it, it does something. And then it, it does, in fact, it, it's not always accurate, but it will mm -hmm. spit something out. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. So it's a predictive text model. The GPT-3 that it's based on is a what we call a large language model that is a deep learning AI model. It's a piece of software that has code that can absorb information from a, a data set, which in this case is millions of books and articles on the internet and Wikipedia, and probably every single English language piece of data they could get their hands on. They've probably fed it into this electronic brain in a sense. It's a neural network 
that takes this information, all those text word, the word positions in each text it's reading, and it calculates like a statistical model of how often each word occurs close to other words, basically. And in doing that, it sort of gets a general idea of the relationship between concepts. But it, it, this particular model, I think, only does a token at a time. Each token is a word. So it's doing like a word by word thing, and it's predicting what's the most likely word that's going to come next in this sequence. And you started out by asking it a question. That's the prompt that it starts. So it's going to continue your prompt by guessing what comes next. And what a lot of people don't realize when they're using ChatGPT is that the entire conversation is the prompt. It keeps adding to itself over time. It has to have that continual feedback to maintain the conversation. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. um, yep. I guess you wouldn't want to play Scrabble against it. That's the, uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, it's been interesting, the reaction to it, because there's been both sort of awe and shock, if we want to reverse those words. It could be fooled into sounding confidently wrong. You called it a superhuman fiction machine at one point. That's true. The world's greatest liar. <laughs> That's the funny thing about it is I do believe there's some sort of a primitive form of thinking going on here that's understanding some relationships between concepts. But at this point, it's still very much a, uh, a crapshoot or a slot machine where you're, you're pulling a handle by putting in a prompt and you get a result. And if you like it, then it looks like it's brilliant because it happens to match what you know about the world. But it can also very easily put out very confident nonsense that it sounds like it's perfect or it could be something that's 90% accurate, but they, it slips in something that's just ridiculous. And if you didn't know the answer, you wouldn't know that it was wrong. And so that's a very dangerous thing about trying to rely on this as a authoritative resource on any information at this yeah. moment. I say we, we all have an uncle like that too. Um, oh have, have you tr have you tried it out? I mean, what just for example, have you sort of looked into or tested it to see where it where it falls a bit short that way, or where yeah. it sounds confidently wrong? Yeah, I mean, one thing I learned early on messing with GPT three earlier this year before the chat uh, GPT came out was I would ask it things about what I know to be true that are not commonly known, like in video game history or computer history or something, because I'm a historian on the side here. And it doesn't know, like, because I've never written about it publicly. It, it can't bring those ideas together if they haven't already been put together in the, the training data. And however, if you are in the process of talking to it, you can talk it through a series of sort of logical steps to kind of teach it within that session something that it needs to know. And it can do some basic reasoning out of that, which is really amazing. But otherwise, it will easily tell you nonsense. So you got to be careful. Right. Yeah. And it does. I mean, uh, what is it? What's the example that's floating around out there? The Ohio-Indiana War, which is fictitious, by the way. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. You could feed it an entirely fictitious, fictitious scenario, and it could spit out a very confident-sounding synopsis of it that sounds like something you would see written down somewhere. Yeah. And see, it doesn't care that it's telling you nonsense because it doesn't know and it doesn't think to that extent. It's just trying to predict what would come next. It's like a mirror held up to you, like what you feed it is what it's going to give back to you. So the prompting is absolutely essential in how the output is going to come out. Benj, when you look at this, though, I mean, one thinks of the things that it could be used for, like essay writing at school, for instance, uh, it's going to create some problems because it is really, really good. Oh, yeah. Throughout all of history up to this point, I think we've been able to confidently say everything we read was written by a human, just most of everything, you know, unless it's algorithmically generated by a machine and it looks like it's, you know, computer generated. But um, there's a certain level of trust there that you're receiving information from a person. And that's probably not going to be the case anymore. This, despite the weaknesses and drawbacks we've discussed, it will probably continue to in, increase in quality and capability until um, it's probably completely indistinguishable from people. That's a brave new world, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, it, it is. is. Uh, so for good, I suppose it could help people. Um, it could help people out with structure and writing and sort of create a, a level playing field when it comes to producing the written word. Gosh, there's, I mean, there's the implications are so, they're so mind blowing and so wide. That's why I think everybody's freaking out about this is because they hadn't considered it. Um, one thing I worried about, I wrote an article for Fast Company in 2020 about deep fakes, which is basically was a term at that time for any kind of computer generated fake of images or text or anything that how they could impact the historical record. So people could make up fake 
artifacts or fake uh, articles or fake anything right. that will rewrite history or make an entirely alternative history to support an ideology. And I think those are extreme uh, risks to our society. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure how to counter that yet, but this is a step in that direction. What about it just in terms of the positives? We talked about that as well, is that it can allow you to, I mean, some people have dismissed this already as sort of saying, well, it's not nearly as game changing as we think, but certainly when you look at it, the future, you're looking at the future, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've dismissed it too, to an extent by saying that, yes, this current generation is just like a, like a, a slot machine. Some, some people call it a, a stochastic parrot that sort of just spit stuff back at you kind of randomly and you see what you want to see in it. But also just a few years ago, what we see now wasn't possible and it's been rapid acceleration. And uh, I think that the, the economic pressures to adopt this kind of technology that can accelerate productivity are just too high to, to have it stop. I mean, imagine just having people, you know, write or talk to people, you will replace some low paid workers somewhere and that sure that has bad effects for some people, but that's what businesses want. They want to streamline costs. They want to increase productivity because that's what the economy demands. And it's going to drive the adoption of this stuff very fast, I think. Yeah, essentially what we're seeing here is 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 a uh, is an artificial a computer essentially being able to converse, right? Being able yeah. to respond and respond intelligently and sort of put things together and predict and that in itself. Um yeah. now the yeah. company that's looked into this I was reading, I mean, they're aware of they're aware of some of the benefits and some of the costs of this, uh, are they not? Yeah, I think so. I have, you know, I've, I have some contacts that know some people in the company um, I don't I haven't been talking to them directly at, at OpenAI uh, recently or anything, but I, from everything I can tell, like rumors through the grapevine and reading their own policies that they've written, I think they are proceeding cautiously. Uh, it seems like they have a sort of iterated rollout plan where their plan is to sort of introduce something, kind of take a step back, see how people react, and then sort of do the next level. And I, I have reason to believe they have even more powerful technology that they haven't shown anyone yet because it's just too ridiculous because they've even said chat gpt is like it's basically last year's tech right <laughs> it's like it, the training ended in early 2022 which means they've been working on something else since then you know we could be looking at something like gpt4 the next generation you know maybe next year and it could just blow everyone's minds i have no idea yeah, what would that look like to to you? I mean, what would that look like to the rest of us, those of us who who don't know much about it, haven't used it? What could a uh, where does this go next, even in the near future? We're already seeing this sort of emergent effects coming out of a large language model that no one ever expected. So I think that when for people first programmed this machine to read everything that's ever been written, they probably didn't think that oh, you can teach it its own language, which someone did the other day, like a new fictional language, and it determines the grammar or it can program every computer programming language ever written, or it could simulate a computer session. Someone's done that. And there's, I feel like that, that emergence comes out of the complexity of this model. And they're working on more and more complex models that are currently held back by just the cost of computing power and computing capability, which is exponentially increasing. So every year we're going to see these increases in complexity. And I think that the next models could just completely blow us away in a way that we don't expect because there's some kind of like, you know, some sort of reasoning taking place when those connections are made in the neural network that, that it's, it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be amazing. We might not even recognize it when we see it. I mean, at that point, yeah. it, it, it'll, it'll move beyond us, our ability to, to compose, right? Our ability to, to mm -hmm. use our brains to write and to, and to speak and so forth. Ben Edwards, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. In this hour, those, this is a really, really interesting story. Um, there is a totem pole that's been sitting at um, a museum in Edinburgh in Scotland, the National Museum of Scotland, for just about a century now. It was carved back uh, in, it was carved in northwestern BC, and um, it was taken by an ethnographer researching Nishka village life back in 1929, who then sold it um to the scottish museum where it's been on display since 1930 so think about that uh nearly a hundred years since it's been there it was the, the pole was carved from red cedar in 1855 it's a memorial 
of Anizgashif. And so uh, the First Nation has been trying for quite a while now to get it back. They've even traveled to Edinburgh to do so. And now they've reached an agreement. The board of directors of the museum, of the uh, Scottish National Museum of Scotland, have agreed to send it back, uh, which is great news. So it will return to its rightful place. Let's be frank. It's where it belongs. But this is a complicated issue because there are simply vast amounts of artifacts that were either commissioned, taken, sold, stolen from communities right around the world and taken and are sitting in collections right around the world, including here in Canada. Uh, so the Western world is under growing pressure to confront issues around rightful ownership of art and artifacts. Um, as historians, historians, indigenous leaders, social justice advocates, and so on, seek to address historical wrongs that led to misappropriation. Um, and that includes lots of very famous examples from the plundering of art by the Nazis, again, to indigenous artifacts that ended up being taken from all over the world back to museums, often um, in European capitals back in the day. And it's, it is a challenging one because first you have to figure out who has what. Then you have to figure out how to what you want to do with them. You know, do you want to return all of them? Where do you put them? How do you handle, is there enough money to be able to handle all the bureaucracy that's involved with this? It's not as easy as simply saying, give it back. Because although that might be the case, you know, we don't know where a lot of these artifacts are. If we do, um, it's important that they be obviously be handled properly and uh, and given and, and given the due respect and given back to those they belong to, um, but also allowing them enough time and giving them enough support so that they can build proper facilities to house these items if need be. So to dig into all of this, and it is a complex subject, one I think we're just just getting started on is Luann Neal, um, someone who has a lot of history working in museums. She's an artist herself. Right now, she's the program lead for the Rogers Indigenous Film Fund at Creative BC, and she's the recipient of the Fulmer Award in Indigenous Art. So she understands this issue from all angles. And Luann Neal joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. So just your reaction to this, uh, to the news that this uh, Nisga totem pole is being returned from Edinburgh. It, uh, it, it is one story amongst many, but it always feels like a very big deal. Especially when it's totem poles, it's a really big deal. Uh, the The museums that hold these treasures often don't want to let them go. They are a big draw. They are a big attraction for visitors to their areas. But they're also our family histories. And some of these poles were not acquired in a, in a very above-the-board kind of a way. Or paperwork has been lost to time and nobody can prove that they were acquired in an appropriate way. So uh, for, for communities to have these coming back is so hugely important because they they not only tell our histories, they are very much a visual representation of our respective identities. And you know this well because you're from a family of carvers and you're a carver yourself, right? Well, I, I don't want to call myself a carver yet. Yeah, right. I'm so such a newbie to it. But yes, I come from a family of carvers and I've had uh, a really interesting range of conversations with not just museums, but private collectors who commissioned some of my great grandfather and grand grandmother's works over the years and uh, asking if they should be returning these poles to me. And so it always gets interesting because in their time, they were very much producing for a commercial audience. Mm -hmm. And so they were poles that were commissioned and sold to people who asked for them, uh, which is quite different from poles being taken from villages that weren't so much abandoned as uh, people were moved and and all of their belongings were left on site uh, and someone came along and took them afterwards. So there's a whole range of stories that go with these. Yeah, I guess it, it, it speaks to the complexities of, of this issue, which is this idea of repatriation and, and you know, because there are clearly uh, Indigenous artifacts all scattered all over the world now in museums big and small. That's right. Of every size of uh, uh, and quantities. In my own artistic journey, I, I actually started in museums because I wanted to see what was created long ago. Um, before I got to know the work of my grandparents. And it was always amazed me when I would see stuff that, you know, I was even learning at a young age that shouldn't be out on display. It was very ceremonial to a very specific family or an initiate. So it, it always piqued my interest. And I think that's what has continued to pull me into this life of talking about repatriation. Yeah. And, and we, it feels like it is something that was uh, even not that long ago was quite a, um, quite a taboo subject in the sense that museums didn't want to really talk about it too much. 
Yeah, and um, I think that there's several pieces that that have contributed to the discussion surfacing and being and remaining strong. I think the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People was a big uh, helper to the the bigger discussion, but also the BC Treaty process for those of us who are in BC that actually contains a portion that speaks to repatriation. And that was from the Royal BC Museum and from the um, Canadian Museum of History. So, yeah, lots of other pieces of legislation and attention being raised to it. And I guess the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well had a section that spoke about uh, this very topic and how important it was in terms of reconciliation, specifically, obviously, within Canada, where many Canadian museums have Indigenous artifacts uh, either on display or in their archives. Well, not only the artifacts, but I think what's all equally as important are photographs and documents, right. records. And the TRC very much spoke to the records portion of, of what's in these collections. But the thing with our communities is those records, those photographs, and the artifacts are all tied together. They're all somehow intertwined. So we can't talk about artifacts without talking about the actual records that were, were created along with them and the photographs that also went with them. So where do we stand in terms of um, of understanding how to approach this? Because I imagine the first thing you need to do is find out who has what, right? I wish it was a nice linear process that we could all follow and have a checklist to go with it. It's so complex when we talk about there being 35 plus different cultural groups, language groups, just in BC alone, 60 across the country of Canada. You've got entirely different protocols for each community. You've got histories that are completely different. Um, knowledge base. Some communities were even more impacted by smallpox and TB and uh, had big declines in populations, which in some cases precipitated these collections happening. So there's there's all of that. But I think one of the things, too, is that in our communities, it wasn't customary to have museums. People own these things. These these are personal belongings. And museums have policies and the different policies of countries around the world have been that they will not repatriate to individuals. So we start to see the formation of systemic barriers that need to be addressed or at least discussed for starters. And then the support into the communities at the community level. Where are these things going to be kept? Some communities want to build a museum. Some want to build a cultural center or a cultural education learning center. All of those are options, but you still need time to build those. And you still need time to research and bring those stories and their histories back together. So um, for the community side and for the museum side, there's lots of work both parties have to do. And I think that it's it's really presumptuous for, for anyone to talk about, you know, let's send in the letter and get that stuff tomorrow. It, it, it's so much more complex than that. And for the safety of these incredible treasures, I think that both sides really want to make sure that they do their due diligence, uh, really talk it through and figure it out, not as a delay tactic, but if you really mean to preserve these things, take the time to talk about them and make a plan for them. Luann Neal is with us. She's program lead for the Rogers Indigenous Film Fund at Creative BC. She is the recipient of the former award in Indigenous art. We're talking about repatriation of Indigenous artifacts. Uh, there's been a push now at last, and we've seen some progress over time. There are different countries around the world that have uh, laws on the books. Canada, I believe, does not have a proper law on the book when it comes to the repatriation of Indigenous artifacts. Uh, but one of the things I've been reading about a lot, uh, Luann, is the need for funding. Uh, for museums, big and small, to, to be to be able to access some money, specifically smaller museums, so they can so they know what's there, so they can start to reach out, or if communities reach out to them and say to know what you have of ours or what you might have of ours that could be ours, that we're able to have sort of a comprehensive idea of what is where. Yes, there's a lot of money that needs to be injected into this entire discussion. What I found in discussions when I was working at the uh, Royal BC Museum is that uh, smaller museums would often call because the the RBCM put together uh, myself, Nika Collison and Lucy Bell wrote the repatriation handbook. And it was the first time such a publication had been put together. And it was really intended to guide not only uh, communities, but museums, especially smaller museums, and give them some things to think about. And what resulted from the first year after that book was released was a lot of calls from museums saying, 
we don't even know which tribes some of these materials came from. They were donated by private donors. or And again, with everything else, there's so many different variations and stories uh, and instances. Being able to sort a collection, get the correct First Nations names attached to them, and then begin that consultation with that community, all of that takes time and money and people power. And it's not just at the museum. Like I was saying about communities preparing for the return of their treasures, the community also needs support to have people hired working on these things. There's an assumption out there that band offices have all these people working for them. They do not. Many band offices don't actually have funding for more than five or six people. It's it's very much per capita based and, and very small staff dollars come from the federal government. So there does need to be the funding in place to put the staffing in the right places so that those conversations and that work can happen, then the discussion around repatriation can move forward. Right. So it feels like we're still at the beginnings of this, of of what will be a fairly long journey to see if we can't uh, return many of these items that no doubt belong somewhere other than where they are right now. In, in lots of ways, I think we're very much at the, in the first few steps, but in other ways, there are actually communities, and I, I've mentioned treaty earlier for BC, mm-hmm. uh, the communities uh, who are involved in the BC treaty process, many of them have been able to, under the auspices of the work they're doing in treaty, they've been able to carry out some of that research. So they do know where their treasures are. They do have the lists. They have been talking with museums. And that's where we're learning a lot about what we still need to do, because they've gone through and sort of pilot tested all of this, uh, given us really good advice, not just us, but um, all the museums they've been working with. So now it's just the willingness of the museums, I think, to be prepared to adjust processes and policies and hopefully advocate for some legislation. If if we think about how many of us, you know, growing up, learnt about different cultures and different places at museums, uh, I think if I feel this is a personal view, it would be it would be a shame to see all um, Indigenous artifacts leave Canadian museums in, in Ottawa, for instance. But you get the sense that it has to be done differently. H- how do you make sure that 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 these are the sorts of items that people can still see and appreciate in you know in, in a city like Ottawa, for instance? At the same time as as make sure that uh, it's done in a way that that respects many of the things that we now know are are very important when it comes to displaying these items or even possessing these items. Mm-hmm. Actually, that question came up very early on in our process back in 2018 partially due to communities not being able to receive things back right away, but some communities saying uh, we're okay with them being in the museums for now because they're going to, you know, it's going to take a few years to build a place to put them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's that. Some communities also talked about being willing to clarify the ownership first and get that down in writing that these items still actually belong to the community in the absence of proof that they belong to the museum and that the community is allowing it to stay in long-term loan with the museum for the purposes of public education. So there's a real willingness to do that. But again, first steps first. Most museums, and I'll I'll pick on the RBCM because they are uh, a provincial museum, very much guided by a provincial legislation, the Museum Act. And that act is very, uh, well, it's pretty clear about, you know, what the museum's all about and, and what it does. It doesn't have an avenue for repatriation formally in that piece of legislation. The effort to do this came about more at the policy level than it did at the legislative level. So I think that that's something that needs to be looked at. We have to, because otherwise a lot of work will get done and, you know, and a generation from now when we're beyond retirement (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, just watching from the sidelines, we may see uh, the next generations run into a legislative glitch. So I'm of the view that if we can take care of it in our era, in our generation, let's do that. Yeah, let's let's spell it exactly what's what. Um, if, if you look forward, say, 10 years, what would you like to see? I mean, where should we be, do you think, on this uh, when it comes to repatriation and, and how it fits into reconciliation? Where do you think we should be in, in 10 years time? What would be a what would be a good pace of change? Well, I would like to see that that definitely certain things have been returned home, especially the ones that uh, people have been working on already for decades. Uh, let's let's bring those to a close. As an artist, what I would really love to see and what I championed when I worked in the museum was the inclusion of artists from our communities in research programs, bringing artists in 
if we know that it's going to take this long, we have artists right now who are interested in creating replicas, creating replicas that either if the, if pieces are too fragile to make it home and that they're going to stay with the permission of the community, if it's going to stay in the museum, the replicas need to be created and gifted back to those families who own them. And then also this just understanding, it's not just these artifacts and their aesthetic value, it's their uh, but like I was saying before, the ownership, which family, the stories, the names, there are songs that are attached to a lot of these and histories and rights and obligations. So it's the whole package. Um, having an artist go in and replicate a piece isn't just creating a mask or a rattle or whatever. It's about all the research that goes into it. And then that's what comes back. I've seen it in my lifetime where songs were returned back to our community and brought back into a ceremony. It feels like we're just starting. Luann Neal, thank you so much for your insight on this. Thank you. 